thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I am delighted to have you with me. I hope today is as exciting for you as it has been for me thinking about today's episode. I'm just stoked, to be honest, about what what God has been cobbling together really over the course of my life, but particularly the last several months, and to share it with you in this context of law and restoring the ruins that exist in the Western legal tradition that we've been talking about, which means the ruins that exist in our law and in our civil government. And as I listened to the last two weeks again, I know I got into eschatology, and I was thinking, you know, I need, I need to get back more to uh, the law, the legal part of this. But I realized you can't restore the ruins if you don't have the right eschatology. I mean, that's just the bottom line of it. And I had never realized that. Now, I, I'm going to put this in a personal context for you. I grew up with the understanding that, you know, see a man diligent in his work and he'll stand before kings. Son, whatever it is you do, even if you're a garbage collector, be the best garbage collector you can. Now, I was encouraged towards excellence in what we would call secular activities, in the way I would express myself, for example, in the workplace and in society. But there really wasn't uh, an expression of excellence in terms of my knowledge of God and growing in the knowledge of God, and that then informing my excellence outside of my own personal soul, so to speak, you know. And as I've looked back, I, I realized that, you know, in some ways that I thought more about it, what was the point of being excellent so that I might stand before kings or being even the best garbage collector I could be if in fact there's no point to it. Now, that ties into a series, and I know we have a lot of new listeners through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, and I'm delighted to have you with me, but it leads back to the series I did on escaping futility, that if we don't understand that the only foundation that can be laid is that which has been laid in Jesus Christ, and why that's so important, and the central defining point of history, and, and build rightly on that, then we may be saved, but our work will be futile. But to be honest, the church today preaches futility. They preach, oh, you'll go to heaven, but everything you do here, oh, you're biding your time. <laughs> I didn't mean Biden as in president, but biding, sorry for my southern slang there. You're just biding your time until you get to heaven. This world is not your home. And to be honest, friends, I've come to realize there's so much bad theology behind that that I never understood and I've struggled with how to even take a bite at addressing it. Like, where, where do you begin? So I want to come back to something I read two weeks ago that deals with this question of eschatology and its connection to law and therefore to restoring the runes that we have in law and government and the Western legal tradition. And then I want to give you a hopeful eschatology that's rooted in some scriptures that to be honest, until a few weeks ago, I had never connected to an optimism 
that is counter to the pessimism of modern evangelicalism, which is come to Jesus and get tromped on, but at least you'll get to go to heaven. Everything's supposed to get worse. The church is to fail. The church is not to grow or expand its influence or not to change anything in this world, but just come to Jesus and you can go to heaven. I want to talk about that. I want to put it in a context that perhaps you've never heard before, but let me now get back to what started this trail down eschatology, and we'll get back to more specifically the issues of the law probably next week. But you may recall that I had read a couple of weeks ago from the book Law and Revolution, which is essentially volume one by Harold Berman, this statement. He's speaking of the revolutions that led to the Western legal tradition, specifically for those who may be just joining us, the papal revolution or the investiture struggle that began in the mid 10 hundreds and ended sometime in the mid 11 hundreds. Then he speaks of the German Reformation that many of us would associate with just quote, the Reformation, but uh, he calls it the German Revolution for the legal purposes. It started with Luther and the 95 Thesis posted on the door of the church at Wittenberg, okay? And then he speaks of the Glorious Revolution, the English Revolution, the Puritan Revolution that took place more in the 1600s. And then he also speaks of the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Russian Revolution because of all of their effects also on the Western legal tradition. So he says this, each of those revolutions, the ones I've just described, translated the experience of death and regeneration into a different concept of the nation and the church. When the Christian eschatology was discarded by the Enlightenment, okay, now what is he referring to there? The Enlightenment said, we can keep the values and the structures that were derived through this development of the Western legal tradition and structure from the papal revolution through the German revolution, the English revolution. We can keep all those, but just without God. And reason and the laws of nature now become the understanding of the universe and the epistemology that we need. We don't need God to create the world or give meaning to the world. Now, let me go back, start again. Each of these revolutions translated the experience of death and regeneration into a different concept of the nation and of the church. When Christian eschatology was discarded by the Enlightenment, which I just described, and by liberal theology in the 18th and 19th centuries, a secular eschatology took its place. Now, before I speak to these secular eschatologies, we need to appreciate that the church has never failed to really have an eschatology. If, if nothing else, it was, we'll go to heaven. That would be our eschatology. But a different eschatology came in, okay, based upon some doctrinal deviations from those developed through the German and English Reformation or the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. They crept into the church and they created this pessimism. And we'll get to that later. But he says a secular eschatology is what replaced the eschatology that had existed previously, which I will tell you was a positive eschatology. You may remember, Berman noted that even the papal revolution was generated in part by the belief that, wait a minute, we live in a new age, an age of new creation, 
that's regenerative and we better get about our business rather than waiting to fly off to heaven, right? He goes on to say this, no people, Rosenstock Hussey writes, this is a historian, noted historian, I think it was at Stanford, can live without faith in the ultimate victory of something. So while theology slept, so as the church changed its eschatology and particularly changed it to a negative one, come join the losing side, the laity, persons, non-clerics, non-clergy, betook itself to other sources of last things. And then Berman defines those, to the eschatology of Karl Marx on the one hand and of Friedrich Nietzsche on the other. Now, now, why does he say that? Why does he limit it to those? Okay, well, here's why. Marx is the view of the Enlightenment, you might say, because it says all that exists is matter. There is no meaning or value to anything except that which we ascribe to it as human beings. Now, for those of you who go way on back in these podcasts, you'll remember when I was talking about uh, futility, I quoted this book about the metaphysical foundations of America. And it noted there that science had gone through this revolution to say, we've misunderstood the very nature of science because all that exists are things and we give those things meaning. And the purpose of that book was to say that that new view of science now needs to take place in politics. That we just see stuff and we, through law, through government, give it meaning. Okay, so, so if you've been listening for a while, you can see this thread that's been running through, this sense of futility and how the world and the cosmos has changed. So therefore you have Marx. He's one eschatology. Matter is all there is. Then the other, really, in a sense, is Nietzsche. It says, well, we can't give any value to matter that's enduring, that's really meaningful. There is no eschatology except whatever the next thing is. And the next thing is, is no different, no better, let's put it that way, no better than, than what was. And we really can't judge what was as bad, nor will we someday be able to look back and say this next new thing was really objectively bad because there isn't anything objective out there. So those two worldviews began to compete. Now, here is what happened, at least on the Marxian side of this eschatology. And now I'm going to quote from Berman's book, Law and Revolution, Volume 2. He says this, at the foundation of Soviet law was an atheist vision that postulated the fundamental goodness of human nature, the inherent ability of humankind to build a society in which each person would now receive income according to his work and eventually according to his deeds, and the willingness of a people, when freed from economic class exploitation and hence from addiction to the opiate of religious beliefs, to respond positively to the will of a dedicated leadership. It was the loss of faith in this utopian vision more than any other factor that eventually caused the collapse of the Soviet Union. In other words, they realized their eschatology wasn't working. It wasn't producing this utopian society. 
Soviet efforts, now this is important, to instill and enforce by law the altruism, it's the utopian vision, the eschatology, necessary to make socialism work exceeded the limits of effective legal action. Now, I want to come back to that in just a moment, but I want to continue. Despite many experiments in balancing state planning with state enterprise autonomy and collective goals of workers with incentives for individual initiative, the planned economy eventually broke down. Okay? So the vision that motivated the Russian Revolution broke down. Now, one of the things that's very important here, and I want to just touch on it because we'll have to come back to it in, in subsequent episodes, but you notice that Berman said that the efforts to instill and enforce by law the altruism necessary to make socialism work exceeded the limits of effective legal action. Unfortunately, the United States has fallen into that same, not only utopian vision of socialism and grounded in an atheism, but its understanding of law, that law can make things good. We'll come back maybe next week to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he, he speaks about the law and the function of the law and says, we know the law is good if it is used lawfully, which is an interesting statement, that law can be used according to Scripture unlawfully. And what we know, just in a nutshell, is the law can never make you good. All it can do is to prohibit or punish evil. But see, the Russians thought they could use it to bring about a utopian vision where there would be love and sharing and harmony and all the Coca-Cola commercial stuff that used to run around in the 70s. Oh, we can do that with law. And it cannot be done, and it will not be done in the United States, and it is futile to think that it can be done. Unfortunately, many of our Republicans seem to think that they can do that, that they can plan the economy and we can all have, uh, you know, the chicken in the pot and a car in the garage, whatever it is. So I, I, I want to go back, though, to this idea of eschatology and how Christians got to have such a negative view of eschatology and end times. Now, there's a lot that factors into that, and if I can, I'm going to try to get in some guests to talk about it. But I believe at the root of it is that we, we, we drew soteriology out of, ripped it out of, the context of cosmology, the nature of the universe. And in isolation and in looking at the world around us, you couldn't help but think it's, it's got to all head in a hell in a handbasket direction. And in fact, that seems to be the direction it's going. And people would point to that to say, see, our soteriology and our eschatology is right. But that's because they have missed protology. They've missed cosmology. First things determine last things. Protology leads to soteriology and to eschatology. I've said that multiple times. So today I want to look at just a couple of passages that tie cosmology to eschatology, and I hope it will blow your mind as it has mine. 
Now, I want to give a good shout out to my friend Chuck Knox, David Shannon, and Jason Farley. Chuck Knox Unplugged, you can find it on the Fight Love Feast Network, but it's been really helpful in taking a lot of the things that I've been learning and the things that I've been studying about law and, and providing sort of hooks on which I can connect those dots. So, if you'll note this, uh, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture found in the book of Jeremiah. The first is in Jeremiah 31. Okay, let me put the context here. Is Jeremiah has given the people of Israel and Judah some really bad news. You know, God, God's going to wipe you out. He said, I created you to be a people for myself, Jeremiah 13, 11. That statement is made in the context of God telling Jeremiah to go get this waistband, a new one that's never been worn, and, and to put it in a crevice of a rock and come back. And when he comes back, it's just, it's useless. It, just, it can't be used, okay? And, and, and so there in 1311, the words are recorded, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. Okay? They're ruined. So in Jeremiah 31, God then says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and, notice this, they shall be my people. There's a second part of this. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now there's not a person within Christendom that would not say, Oh, that's the new covenant. That's the new covenant that's made with Jesus. Uh, it's the blood and uh, the body of Jesus. That's the new covenant, right? Everybody would say that. Nobody would deny that. But look at the words that then follow it. They are words of assurance of the promise that there will be this new covenant and new uh, dispensation, we'll say. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, what's he doing here? He's saying, I've just made this promise to you. Now, I want you to look up into the sky and notice the fixed order of things. Look at the sea. No man makes the seas roar. No man changes the order of the sun and the moon and their purposes and the stars. No man does that. Now, why is he pointing to that? Because in Psalm 19, we're told the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look to the heavens, we see an order and an integrated cosmos that works perfectly all the time in harmony. Okay? It works exactly as God intended it to work. And no man can change it. That's really important. Now, here's what he says. If this fixed order departs from before me. In other words, if 
if, if all of a sudden uh, I reverse the flow of the sun and the moon and all of that, and uh, he said, then the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now, when you read that, and you read it in the context of the new covenant, and Jesus saying, or God saying through Jeremiah, I wanted a people, he's saying these new covenant people will be my people, and they, in essence, are the offspring of Israel to be a nation before me. That gets ripped from its context, if it's ever even cited, to say God has two peoples. And, and so he's now in the church age working with the people of the new covenant, and he's going to go back and work with the people of Israel. But in this passage, the new covenant people, he says, are, they are the offspring of Israel. They are the nation before me. He doesn't distinguish between Israel and these new separate new covenant people. Now, now in fact, we see that in 1 Peter 2, 9. Let me turn to that. We read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But what did he say right before that? He said, I am building up a spiritual house and a priesthood, and the choice stone for this new building is the one the builders rejected. It was the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense because they're disobedient to the word and to that doom, the doom that happened to Israel and to Judah, they were also appointed. But the great news is that it's not the doom of all, quote, Jewish people or descendants of, of Jacob because we read in Ephesians that in fact what has happened and now I'm looking at um, Ephesians chapter 2 that there is now one new man not known by ethnic boundaries it is new creation 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 it's new creation there's a new Man. And so in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, as he's speaking to the Galatians who, who were Gentiles, who were being harassed by the ethnic Jews because they weren't conforming to the law, he refers to them as the household of Israel. Now what's so beautiful about this is God was saying to them in the time of Jeremiah, look to the heavens and I will assure you that I am going to do this and I'm going to bring it about sure as the sun's going to rise tomorrow and the moon will set the next day. We can believe it. We, we can look into the heavens and say, ah, he promised this, and look, it came true. The word of God is sure and true, and he fulfills his purposes, his covenant purposes. Now, flip on over in Jeremiah chapter 33, and we read something else that's very similar but yet a little different for a very important reason. And it's in verses 19 through 21. And here we see again 
God tying his purposes, his future purposes, to the orderliness of the cosmos. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night shall not be at their appointed time. And I'm going to stop right there for a moment. He actually there uses the word covenant as opposed to earlier ordinances. Now, why might that word covenant be used there? Well, the word covenant there is the same word that is first introduced to us in Scripture in connection with Noah, where the words are, I will establish, or better translated, reestablish my covenant, Noah, with you. Okay? So he's, he's drawing a connection in the use of this concept of covenant back to Noah. That's going to be important. Hold on just a moment. He says, so if you can break that kind of covenant with the day and the night so that day and night do not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. Now, notice here, it's not that I'll have a people, but that David would have a servant. So we're pointing to the orderliness and, and God's structuring of the heavens, not now to show that I'm going to bring forth a people, but to show that David will not lack for someone to have a son to sit on the throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Now, what's this idea here of kingship and priests? Now, let's tie this together. And the encouragement we should have that God never started anything he didn't intend to finish. So let me just inject right here. What did God start to do in the garden? He created man and woman. He put them in a marital context. He said, now reproduce, fill the earth, subdue the earth. Through the filling of the earth and the subduing of the earth, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. Now. Let's go do it. That was God's protology. That was the order of the decree of God from the foundation of the world. And it, and it wasn't altered or changed because of the fall, because that would mean that the fall somehow had not factored into God's plan. And we've already talked about that. The fact that that man was made in God's image was that God could then take on the nature of man to restore the image. God could have just made man like a beast, but he didn't. He made him in his image so that the nature of man would be suitable for the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, we, we need to keep coming on here. but um, so, so we've got this idea that look to the heavens, the heavens are, are teaching you something. They're revealing the glory of God. Nature reveals the glory of God. Psalm 19, Romans 1. And here's what you will see is going to be true, the same as the orders of the sun and the moon, is that David will not lack for a son to sit on the throne. Now, let's just think this through, and here's where I owe a debt of gratitude to my friends at Chalk Knox Unplugged. David was a descendant of Jesse who is of the tribe of Judah, who was prophesied 
to be the tribe that would hold the scepter. And that happened. Joseph is a descendant of David, who is a descendant of Jesse, who's of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus is in the kingly line of succession for the people of God. Wow. Now, here's the next part. Nor lack a priest. Now, why is that important? Think back to the time of Saul. You'll recall that the priesthood and the kingship were divided. So when Saul is king, got impatient for Samuel to show up, he created his own sacrifice, which was not his duty, and the kingdom was ripped from him. Now, this wasn't an arbitrary thing. This wasn't just disobeying God. Not, I mean, he did. But I believe it had to be torn from him because God had said, look, there will be one in whom the kingship and the, and the priesthood will be merged, and it is my son, and it is not you, Saul. And so the kingdom must be torn from you. Now, where do we see this idea? Well, we see it in Psalm 110, where it talks about a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and it talks about the king. Okay? It talks about both there. We see in Hebrews that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if we go back to Melchizedek, which takes us back to Abraham, to whom Abraham pays tithes, we see that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which eventually became Jerusalem. But Melchizedek was also the priest for the Most High God. He was kingship and priesthood put together. And that is under the disposition of the covenant made with Noah. Do you see how all that fits? In other words, Melchizedek was a type of Christ within the sphere of the Noahic covenant, which was a reaffirmation of the Adamic covenant pertaining to all people, not just the people of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So in Jesus, we now have a king who's not just king over the people of God through Jesse and Judah, but king in the order of Melchizedek. But there's more. In Luke chapter 3, following, interestingly, the baptism of Jesus, we read the genealogy of Jesus. And in verse 38, we read these words. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Do we see now who Jesus is in yet a different context, in a different administration of the history of salvation, of the covenant purposes of God? Because Jesus, though he was the son of God in his divine nature, we are told that in his human nature, Adam was an ectype of the archetype of Jesus. Romans 5.14, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus was the second Adam. So do you see what we have in Jesus? We have in Jesus a successor to the kingship 
of Adam relative to creation, mediating God to the rest of creation. We have Jesus as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest king under the Noahic covenant following, in essence, the pattern given for a new creation. And we have Jesus as the descendant of David and the priest after Levi as the priest king of the people of God. So when the scripture says to us, who can bring a charge against God's elect, the king in all three uh, realms, in all three types that exist in scripture are found in Jesus. So who can bring a charge against God's elect? So when the scripture says, so then what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? The answer has to be nothing because our king and our priest are the same person. And the priest says we're forgiven. We've been offered to God through Jesus Christ. And the king says, you're my subjects. You're my people. I give myself for you. There is a basis for a positive eschatology. It is an eschatology, a history of salvation rooted in the cosmology and the creation, the protology, and they all hang together. And next week, we're going to look at that as how it applies to nations and governments. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.